I mean, what would you say to someone who really wants to get their book published, especially someone from quite an underrepresented background? I would suggest doing your research. Yeah. Um, research absolutely everything, you know, research competitors for your book, research which... Welcome to the Brown Don't Frown podcast with your host, Tanya Hardcastle. We're here to engage in a thoroughly inclusive conversation with women from different backgrounds. Shaped by our cultural, racial and social experiences, we share our stories. Good evening, fellow podcast listeners. I'm joined by the lovely Katie Taylor. Today's episode is talking about women in publishing. We'll start off with Katie telling us a bit more about herself. Yeah, I'm Katie. I was sort of born and raised in Derbyshire. Um, I still live in Derby now. I did my degree in French and Spanish at the University of Hull and then I did my master's in literary translation at UEA in Norwich. I sort of realised that whilst I loved the act of translating from one language into another, what I genuinely really loved was making the resulted translation sound good in English. Right. Because it's one thing to just turn one word into another but if the full sentence doesn't read Mm, well then it's not a good translation so I decided to get into editorial wow yeah and here I am in I'm a junior editor in the publishing house oh that's awesome what sort of publishing does it is it focused on anything in particular or is it general yeah so I the publisher I work at is mental health and well-being focused okay actually all the proceeds and things go to a mental health charity um, and we are basically trying to break the stigma that comes around mental health. Yeah, absolutely. There is a big sort of drive and push towards debunking the myths around mental health. And as you said, stigmatising it because there is so much stigma around it, especially around, I think, certain cultures. And I think for the older groups in society who sort of don't understand or don't want to understand mental health and its impact because of the way in which they were raised to be you know, quite tough and quite boisterous, especially for men, I think. It's one of those big issues. But it's good to see that there is a drive and push to making you know, people's thoughts more open and sharing people's stories, I guess. Yeah, That's definitely. That's a really good way, yeah. I mean, as someone who works for a publisher which focuses on mental health and well-being, would you say destigmatization of mental health is widening or is there a long way to go, would you say? Um, I actually think that's sort of a tough one to answer because there's growing awareness of, you know, mental illnesses, you yeah. know, quite a few, you know, societies lean towards being open about, you know, anxiety, depression. Yeah. But at the same time, there's a tendency to build all that up around awareness days and things like that and then forget it the rest of the time um you know when we're, I mean not to be overly topical but any sort of incident that happens for example London Bridge the most yeah. recent one yeah people immediately say oh the attacker had mental health problems he's a madman <laughs> um and that actually goes back right back to stigmatizing mental illness again so I think it's quite tough because there is growing awareness mm. but the stigma the destigmatization still has a bit of a way to go, I think. Okay. And I think historically as well, it has seemed that women are less stigmatized for showing their mental health problems. Um, whereas this whole concept of toxic masculinity, which I think pretty much every single person encourages or condones in a way without realizing it, it has hampered men from being able to be more open about their feelings and their mental health. And I just wanted to know whether this is something that you see reflected in publishing. Um, yeah, I mean, speaking as someone who um, 
you know, I when I was an editorial assistant, I was in charge of the submissions, so I saw what was coming through, and we did get a lot more women opening up than men, but we do have a lot of men submitting who want to help break the stigma, right. who want to be seen as being serious about their mental well-being. Um, and I, I wonder if that's because they feel like writing is a safe space. They can write their feelings down, not have to really be completely full-on... So, I mean, I don't know whether they feel... If they write down their feelings, it's yeah, a bit yeah, easy yeah. for them. And then they're not challenged on it because it's just written down. You're not, they're not having someone speaking back to them. Is that what yeah, you mean? Poss- yeah, in a way, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, we do encourage people of all genders to open up. Um, mm. And we are, you know, I'm very proud of my male authors, especially for, you know, taking that step because I know they can find it quite hard and they are pioneering, really. Um Sounds a bit patronising, doesn't it? I'm very no, proud of my male Yeah, I mean, is there anything that youth publishing industry is doing to enable more authors to come forward with their mental health stories? Uh, I think basically what we can do is be welcoming to it. We, you know, we don't turn anyone away because of their gender. We are welcoming of the fact that everybody has feelings and everybody should be able to talk about those feelings right. without you know, being pushed back on for them or, you know, anything like that. Um, I think the more that we publish these sorts of stories, the more it will be seen as okay to talk about, talk about yeah. them and to put those stories out there. Would you say you've seen a, a trend in the publishing industry of books with a feminist theme as well as mental health? Yes, um, I have seen quite a few sort of feminist books coming through it's really good to see there's, you know, this whole girl power trend at the moment. Yes. Which is fantastic. I think that's the next step, really, is to make sure that the feminist books we're seeing are inclusive of all women, you know, to ensure equality, because I do find that there are books that promote girl power, but in a weird sense. So Quite a privileged perspective. A privileged perspective, yeah. and also things like saying... You know, if you're nice, you won't succeed. You have to be the bitch. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's actually, just feeling more stereotypes. <laughs> exactly. And I think we need books that say it's all right to be nice. It's great to be nice. Here's I mean, how you can succeed, however you are. While you're being a nice person. Yeah, yeah you don't yeah, have definitely. to turn into this ruthless, like... <laughs> so I think, yeah. yeah, it is a nice trend. I think we just need to flip it a bit. I understand that in the publishing industry is quite largely dominated by women Mm. Um, but I understand that it's also more apparent in the junior and middle management roles whereas the more senior and executive level roles continue to be dominated by men would you say this is the case I think in my experience I have seen I have seen this but you know things are changing Mm -hmm. we're calling these things out when we see them we're saying you know where are the women in this space right now we're promoting women to fill those seats Mm. alongside the, the men but it is something that I have noticed and that I hope will continue to change. Right. And I've also noticed that men generally, I think that's across across the board in general, yeah. is publishing, they're, they're paid more than, than women are and get promotions quicker. So there is still quite a lot of work to do in that respect because, you know, if you're doing exactly the same role, same work as, as your male counterpart, why shouldn't you be paid the same amount? And that's an argument that just continually gets repeated and this whole gender pay gap thing, you know, is a big revelation. And I think others have also pointed out that this sort of promotion incentive is to encourage men to work in the publishing industry 
And I think in 2018, the booksellers research showed that Hachette, which is quite a big publisher in the UK, I understand, had a median gender pay gap of 24% and a mean pay gap of 29%. And that's that's quite a big difference. I mean, there are men who want to get into publishing. Um, I mean, there are quite... I think it is overwhelmingly female, but there are lots of men, you know, doing masters in publishing. We've right. had, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know... And it's really encouraging to see because everybody's voice in the industry is important and it shouldn't be seen as a female thing on the ground level. It should, you know, we need lots of diverse voices of all genders, really, to contribute. Yeah. It's an interesting concept because it also, at school when we were young and there were these sort of defined roles for men and women and men were meant to be really good at, good at maths and sciences mm-hmm. and numbers and women were back to good at, you know, words and literature. So I don't know if that's something that was, that's fueled you know, in early yeah. childhood and then you sort of have that in your mindset and then you sort of delve away from it because you think, oh, well, it's not, you know, assigned to my gender role. So that's that's quite an interesting uh, yeah. thing to think about as well. I also found out recently that J.K. Rowling wrote her book, The Cuckoo's Calling, under the pseudonym Robert Galbraith. Yeah, I believe she wanted to, obviously... Detach herself. Yeah, you think J.K. Harry Rowling Potter. is Harry Potter, you can't <laughs> yeah, get yeah. away that's from actually, the Yeah, that's a good point. It's Harry Potter. So she decided to um, put it under a pen name, but also because mm. it's crime... It's overwhelmingly male in the yes, crime genre. Yes, I have noticed that, yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, she couldn't quite get away from who she is, and mm. she was sort of spotted quite soon. <laughs> but um, yeah. it's quite sad that she felt she had to use yeah. a pen name. As you said, it's probably because she, she was so overshadowed by Harry Potter. Mm. Um, well, if you're going to write a global hit, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I recently read that a just one publisher in 2018 took up the challenge to publish only female writers, and this was a Sheffield-based company called And Other Stories. Yes. I mean, I don't know very much about them, but I just I came across it quite recently. Do you think that sort of enables more women to come forward and publish their stories? Or do you think it sort of plays into the whole quota thing? Because I don't know how effective that actually is. I think... I mean, I came across another Other Stories because they do a lot of translation, which okay. I really like. So what I feel about Another Stories is that they look for underrepresented voices. Okay. I do think it's a brave move to publish only female writers. It is. Um, for many reasons. There is there is a point where I wonder if it's a tick box exercise, you know. Yeah. Good on them, but also I think we need, we can't, we can't try for equality by boxing. Excluding yeah. others, yeah. Well, some also say that in publishing, there is this tendency and whether it's subliminal or whether it's, you know, quite conscious action, you know, for editors and marketers to develop work um, with books by and about those who are like them. So essentially hiring within their own image. Do you think that's something you've come across or something that you've actually done, would you say, without realising? I was thinking about this and I yeah. did realise that all of my authors that I've edited, say for Enoch Lee, who is Chinese, I think, yeah, they've all had similar experiences to me. I've been able to work with, um, you know, I've recently discovered that I'm autistic, so I've okay. been able to sort of empathise with autistic Yeah, authors. I read that on your blog, actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Stalking. <laughs> um, yeah. But... Still a quick Google of you, yeah. Um... Yeah, especially in the mental health field, yeah. Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's easy to sort of work with people who you have a similar experience to. Absolutely, um, I think that's just human nature as well. I mean, what can you can't escape from that? I do look for inspiring content. You know, whoever it's from. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I know that some of my colleagues, you know, I've had South Asian colleagues who've really pushed to get South Asian authors in, yeah. who've really championed them, in fact. I think, again, that's because I can't really speak for them, but as far as I know is that it's because they can relate and yes. understand, yeah, 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 especially yeah. in the example I'm thinking of, it's, you know, they had very similar experiences being yeah. South Asian in Britain and Growing they're able to bring those yeah, yeah. feelings out of them. And that's the thing with novels or even non-fiction works. It's if you find an element of relatability, you're going to read it, you're going to pick mm. that up. If you read that blurb and you think, oh, I can relate to that, that sort of similar experience has happened to me as well. Yeah. So I guess that's inevitable. Last year, there was a hashtag that went round on Twitter called Misandrine Publishing, which was this sort of backlash by men yeah. against, you know, trying to encourage more women to be in the public publishing industry. And men were fighting back, saying we're sort of excluded and we're being demonised by virtue of our gender. I've not really... Um, mm. I have to say where I work, where I work is quite female-oriented. Yeah. But, you know, I've also been in publishing spaces where there's more men than women. Yeah. How does that work then? So the fact that you have more women than you have men where you work, is that Mm. the case? How do the men, do they ever bring that up or are they quite lax about it? No, you know, they're not really bothered. Um, Do they feel intimidated or anything? No. Not that I know of. (laughs) I hope we're not too scary. Going back to your point about South Asian women, you know, what I really would like to see is go to whichever bookshop and looking at the shelves and seeing that mm-hmm. oh well this would really appeal to my younger self or a friend of mine has experienced this and therefore I'd like to read more about it yeah and I think that's the case with mental health especially because I've got several friends who have you know suffered from depression and I've got one friend who I've known since school she's been on antidepressants since she was 16 for me when she first started taking them when we were at school I didn't really understand I'd just I'd just be very nonchalant about it and don't we just you know go out and enjoy life and she'd be like I don't want to you know I'm really depressed and I just thought she was going through a phase I'd moved away for uni and came back and she was still in that phase and that's when I realized oh my god this is actually if I you know picked up a book telling a similar story I think I'd be able to really appreciate that as well yeah Yeah. um, I think that's what we're trying to do as well I mean the books we publish aren't just for people who might have those disorders those illnesses but can understand for their friends and family yeah. as well you know, there's such insight that you can get into someone's life we've had people say oh I've been able to understand daughter's eating disorder and I didn't really I thought she might be making it up before like or being dramatic but now I've read this book I can understand that it's yeah. actually in your head you can't escape it I think it in a way really validates it and reinforces it because some people don't really see the truth or the impact until they read a similar situation that Mm. someone else has experienced and then they're like oh yeah I can relate to this and therefore you know I'm going to take it more seriously Mm. I recently read that a British novelist called John McGregor and he outlined a really interesting quote that I saw about the publishing industry um, and it's something that I really, really thought about. I mean, I don't really have any conclusions on it as well. And maybe that's something we can discuss today. Um, but he said, the problem is one of structure. The problem is one of form. The entire culture and apparatus of the British published novel was developed by an economic elite with leisure time on its hands. And the descendants of that class work to perpetuate an environment in which their own sort feel at home while others are accepted only as hyphenated anomalies. The working-class writer, the black writer, the gay writer, the disabled writer, the woman writer. And I thought that really highlighted the truth of not just publishing, but just 
society as a whole that we are hyphenating things, you know, mm. and we're considering them ab- abnormalities, deviating from the norm. As I mentioned earlier, some it can sometimes feel a bit like a tick box exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, oh, it's you really know. difficult to find the balance, isn't it? Yeah. Between um, authenticity and just forcing something. Yeah, it's quite well known that publishing is quite elitist and we are trying to change that from within because mm. we want it to be inclusive and representative of everybody. Yeah. Um, something that I found quite sad was that um, only 1% of children's books have a um, BAME main character. Yes. Um, which yeah. is a terrifying Yeah, thought. and you don't realise that because when I was a kid, I, I didn't really conceptualise the fact that I was different from my peers at school, that I was brown. <laughs> so, But yeah, if I had seen more lead characters in novels who were brown like me, maybe I'd feel a bit more empowered mm. now that I think about it. Yeah, I mean, the amount of... Because we, um, you know, we publish children's books, so, you know, we'll have, we'll have cover meetings and have a look at a cover, and there could be a whole class full of children on this front cover, and they'll all be white, and you think... That's not representative. That's not representative at all. Modern-day Britain. Mm. Yeah, that's true, very true. And, you know, it's just, it's quite sad to see. <laughs> I think one thing I really struggled with growing up is having two different cultural identities, and mm. I never really found a book that sort of honed in on that so I could sort of relate to it. Mm. And maybe if I had found a book in my teenage years that sort of examined, you know, the sort of cultural identity of someone who's growing up as a brown or an Asian woman in modern-day Britain, how they feel. Um, and I think one aspect of that was the fact that I, I actually went to secondary school in the north of England, in North Yorkshire, and I was the only brown kid <laughs> in my entire school. So it was really interesting experiencing that. And you know, I've obviously grown and learned a lot from it, but having, I guess, a book or some sort of literature to refer to that made me feel like, oh it's normal to be this colour or to have these cultural aspects of my life. Do you remember in the syllabus at GCSE level reading a poem called Half Cast? Yes. Yeah, that really resonated with me in a way. Yeah, I guess seeing more things like that in the maybe in the school curriculum mm. would be really effective. Yeah, that's something that I would definitely like to see. Just something that, you know, kids can relate to, kids yeah. can learn from, just things that normalise existence really Exist- exactly normalizing yeah. existence normalizing i love it existence. i haven't actually read this but the good immigrant which is a collection of stories about yeah. ethnic people from ethnic backgrounds growing Very up in britain book. and have you read it yeah would it's you on recommend? my bookshelf i would oh really yeah wow. it is really really interesting it's eye-opening eye-opening i think yeah yeah um it was yeah i found it quite striking nikesh shukla who edited the book um highlighted that in 2016, World Book Night actually failed to include any writers mm. of colour. Um, it's only been three years since then, but would you say things have shifted since then? Um, I think that um, there is more of a consciousness mm. around all-white shortlists. Um, you know, there's a complete uproar when the shortlist is all male, and mm. we call it out. Yes. So we need to, to you apply know, the same level of scrutiny. We need to apply the same level of scrutiny. We need to do the same thing. Yeah. You know... Um, I mean, personally, in our in our company, we have we sit around a table, we talk as a team, and we think about who we include, you know, what we're looking for. We need to shine a spotlight on everybody, and we need to call out when they're not when people aren't doing that. Have you had any non-white authors focusing on stories about their mental health? 
within your publishing? Yes, a lady called Enoch Lee. She writes about the pressures of growing up in Hong Kong, her mother wanting her to do well, and she did. She was very high-flying. She was working in banking in Hong Kong, very high up. Yeah. But she realised, because she'd been pushed to do that, she hadn't really had a childhood. Right. And she got incredibly stressed as you would when you were working high up in yeah especially in banking in banking and she tried to die by suicide and then she realized that she'd never actually had given herself time to let go and relax and enjoy relax enjoy the moment to enjoy the moment so she actually went back to her childhood and she now runs a business called therapy where she explores her feelings through teddy bears it's really fascinating actually and I really enjoy- I worked on that personally actually I really enjoyed it another good guy is Michael Nangler who okay. was he was the first of his family born in Britain right. all of his brothers had been born in India okay and so he had to sort of learn to grow up with this he felt a bit cut off from yeah. well he felt cut off from his Indian heritage his UK side but also his family as well because as a he's, whole because they were very Indian yeah. orientated I'm yeah. guessing he's obviously growing up in Britain that's all he'd ever known and when he got to university he sort of tried to find himself a bit he fell head over heels in love with a woman and he was completely fixated on her he just felt so overwhelmed he had a psychotic break oh my goodness and his parents took him back to India and tried to cure him through a shaman because that was how they knew to... Right. So he had to sort of consolidate his British side, his Indian side, and really discover who he was as a person. person. That's really interesting. And did you write about it then? Yes, so his book is called Love and Other Gods. Um, Wow. Yeah, that was... It was really interesting to see, actually, because my um, Were South you involved Asian, in it? I helped commission it. Wow. Okay. Um, my um, South Asian colleague really took him under his wing and wow. yeah, worked yeah. with him to really... He, as I was saying earlier, he drew on his experiences yes. and really helped get the most out of the book. And it's... Yeah, it's a journey. <laughs> so what's the criteria for getting into publishing? Um, so having a book published that is yeah so when we look to publish a book that's been submitted to us uh, we generally look at the synopsis um, you know what issues the book deals with whether it's a new area for us yeah or a different exciting take on a topic we've already covered because obviously you know it's not just limited to one experience of a mental illness there are lots of different experiences Absolutely. Um, And whether there are any similar books on our list. We also look at the market competitors for that book. Okay. um, To see what the reception of that book is. Like a similar style. Mm, Okay. Yeah. The target audience as well. Obviously, we need to know who we're targeting and whether there's a gap in the market that we can fit. How long would you say it would take you, it should take you, to be able to be thinking, oh, this is something that's going to sell, this is going to be striking to readers? Um, we generally read a few pages of really? about a few thousand words, but sometimes you can get a couple of pages in and, you think, and think no. Or, right. you know, either. It really depends, doesn't it, then? It really yeah. depends. Um, you know, it's really, we think about what keeps us reading it. You know, is it inspiring? Especially our publishing house, we think, you know, is this book going to help people? Is this book going to inspire people? Yeah. Um, generally, we're looking for something gripping, um, yeah. you know, something that shines a new light on mental health and well-being, 
something accessible as well um, and something that will both grab your attention make you want to read more but also be useful yeah not hard work not hard work <laughs> you're trawling through words that you don't understand mm-hmm. I mean what would you say to someone who really wants to get their book published especially someone from quite an underrepresented background I would suggest doing your research yeah um, research absolutely everything you know research competitors for your book research which um, publisher you want to submit to because people have different you know areas of expertise absolutely um, yeah. even within imprints and big publishing houses they'll all have separate criteria one publisher or one literary agent's submission criteria will be vastly different to somebody else's research the gaps in the market research you know research everything and be prepared when you send your manuscripts in would you say that social media will change the way publishing works? I mean, it's very empowering and it gives everyone a voice to tell their stories and enables alternative funding methods such as crowdfunding. So we've seen organisations like Unbound, which yeah. enables people to really put their voices and authenticity forward. And it's become sort of a commodity as well, hasn't it? Yeah, um, I think publishing and social media are sort of inextricably linked as yeah, well because yeah. it's hard to get out there even without some form of social media platform exactly. you know quite a lot of publishers look for um, following an engagement as well to see how you react with your audience what you've got to say to your audience how receptive yes. they are um you know social media is omnipresent as well in our lives so it's quite hard to escape anyway yeah so i think if publishing wants to evolve with the times and with society as well because we're sort of shaped by social media there are more smartphones than there are people so that says a lot (laughs) (laughs) there's so many there's a book blogger community yeah they are you know we love the book bloggers they they carry us they're fantastic because they write Um, some original reviews they write reviews they hype up books they're so passionate and so lovely to see so as you've said, you think the traditional publishing industry does need to evolve to accommodate, yeah. accommodate social media. But I think it has to an extent as well. Mm. And I'm guessing a lot of publishing houses are now sort of hybrids between P- PR within social media as well as traditional publishing. Yeah, we do a lot of tweeting. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Do you do that yourself as well? Yes. On um, behalf of authors? We encourage our authors to get their own Twitter accounts because right. obviously... You know, they can engage with their followers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they can engage with the wider community mm. um, and they can help push their book on there. Yes. Um, but yeah, we try to lift our authors through um, social media as well. There's so many, you know, communities and hashtags and things that can get them noticed and get their stories heard and get their voices out there. Um, yeah, readers give off a more of an authentic vibe as opposed to having an agent or someone represent you. I think having that personal touch is really important. Yeah, I think yeah. rather than you know just being a name on a cover, it yeah. can see you as a person. Do we think that there is a lack of diversity in British publishing? And by div- diversity, I guess it covers all grounds. So inclusion mm. of voices from you know gay, trans, mentally unwell, disabled, BAME, working class, and underprivileged. You know, the publishing industry, like any industry really, it needs to be much more diverse, much more accessible. It's quite London-centric. Yeah. I live in Derby. And when I, I managed to get two weeks' experience at Penguin... Wow, that's incredible. I had to stay on my cousin's floor. Um, I basically used up all the money that I'd saved working in a cafe after uni... Oh, my ...on goodness. two weeks in London at Christmas. And I... My sort of mentor, who was at Puffin looking after me... Um, took me out for lunch on the last day. Right. 
And he was saying, oh, so, you know, have you got any others lined up? Any other experience lined up? And I said, well, no, it's taken me like a year to get this. I'm bankrupt. I'm bankrupt. <laughs> yeah, I'm bankrupt. I'm so poor. <laughs> and he couldn't believe how, you know, I'd had to spend money on train tickets. I'd had to sleep on my co- at my cousin's. So did you um, tell him? And I told happened? him this. Yeah. And he couldn't believe it because he lived, you know, born and raised in London. He just stayed on it, stayed with his parents. Yes. You know, and different work experience every other week. And he just couldn't grasp the fact that it's taken so much. I mean, I'm only in Derby as well. I mean, people in the north of England, in yeah, Scotland, like in Wales. North. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I spent part of my life there and it is so different to the whole London-centric or city vibe, you know. There's not very much to do there, not very many opportunities and it would be good to see mm. better spaces for people who live in those areas as opposed to everyone gravitating to London, you know. It's, yeah. it's oversubscribed, basically. I mean, there are indies scattered around, you know, I'm in Nottingham, there's a few more in Nottingham, Sheffield, yeah. Manchester. I know Penguin and Ashet are starting to have spaces in Manchester. Yeah. But again, Northern powerhouse. Northern powerhouse. But again, Manchester's still quite far south relatively for people up in, you know, Scotland and places. So um, there's a couple of publishing houses in Scotland, but again, it's competitive to get in. It is. It's Yeah, you need to know the right people. And as you said, the whole, you know, unpaid internship situation is terrible. It really is for the elite. Only people Mm. who are able to afford it are able to take those. And you need those in order to get... Yeah, foot through the door exactly. so it's just a vicious circle and we need you know we just need so many more voices and you know opinions and viewpoints in the industry um, yeah. you know we need you know hashtag own voices you know we need to ensure that we're publishing as I keep saying something relevant to the world we both have books that we want to talk about I do this thing called a quote of the book where we extract a quote from a book we've recently read which carries either a, a feminist theme or anything that we think particularly stands out, anything that we can relate to. Do you want to go first? Yeah, can do. I actually chose a controversial quote, as I was saying. It yeah. could be seen as a bit sexist. Um, <laughs> but it is from my all-time favourite book that I turn to, you know, whenever I'm feeling a bit low or whatever. Yeah. So I do read it quite a bit. Okay. Um, so the quote is from Polgara the Sorceress. It's a fantasy novel by David Eddings. It's part of a big series. The wow. quote is, When Father uses the word politics, he's talking about relations between nations. When I use the word, though, I'm talking about the various subtle ways a woman can get men to do what she wants them to do. Wow. Yeah. I said it is a bit controversial. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's an intensive quote, but I love yeah. it. Elaborate. So it's taken from a scene where... The um, Polgara, the main character, has come to court for the first time. She's figuring out, she's a young woman, she's figuring out who she is, um, you know, what her, what her what her role is in that space. Okay. And When's she's, it set? It's, 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 it's a fantasy yeah. world, but it's like medieval times, okay. basically. Yeah. So she is, she's quite a powerful woman. Her father is one of the most powerful men in the world. Wow. But he's... Quite sexist. <laughs> he's, well... He has some odd views. <laughs> um, he's not like that there's, one. There's a lot of female empowerment, but there's also he's a cantankerous old man. Yeah. Um, he, but basically, Polgara is coming into herself, and she. The reason I've chosen this as something that I relate to feminism. Okay. Is she's learning how to control her own femininity. 
she is learning how to conduct herself, how to worm herself into positions of power. Yes. How to make her voice heard in male spaces. At this point, she's talked her way into a meeting between lots of kings and um, she's found her seat at the table. Wow. And she's putting her voice in there, but she's worked out that the only way she can do it is to sort of make the men say her opinions for her. Yeah. Um, But it really struck me, both when I first read it and still now, as... it's a woman finding her own power and I found that quite empowering just basically a bit of context for it is she's just she um she rejected all things feminine for quite some time she's Um, rebelling against it so she was rebelling against it and then she goes through this transition where she suddenly thinks you know what I can be feminine and powerful and she you know there's a big thing about how she does all her hair she washes her hair she does it all she dresses in this absolutely stunning dress that's like Wow. low cut and scares everybody at court. <laughs> and she comes in and she makes herself known so that's what really resonated with me yeah I think also raised on themes such as sexual empowerment as mm. well and using your sexuality and your attractiveness as a tool yeah um, for power play which is again very interesting but again as you said quite controversial as well yeah. depending on how people look at it so I'm currently reading White Teeth by Zadie Smith oh, it's yeah. a very popular book and I know it was very popular when it came out in I think 2000 and it's one of those books that I thought to myself why didn't I read this soon and as I mentioned you're looking at things I could relate to when I was in my teenage years it's one of those books that you know if I'd read as a teenager I think it would have really shaped and maybe changed some of my perceptions because back then it was all about fitting in it centers around the trials and tribulations of two friends and their family the guy is called Samad Iqbal who is a Bangladeshi immigrant who has an arranged marriage uh, with, with a Bengali woman and they subsequently have twin sons born in the UK uh, and his friend is called Archie Jones who's an English guy and he marries a Jamaican woman and they have a mixed race daughter so it centers around their lives they're you know all very good family friends and the it goes like this so it goes but it makes an immigrant laugh to hear the fears of the nationalist scared of infection penetration miscegenation when this is small fry peanuts compared to what the immigrant fears dissolution disappearance their Bengaliness thoroughly diluted, genotype hidden by phenotype. It is both the most irrational and natural feeling in the world. I could really resonate with this quote because the context is essentially she's worried about her son um, becoming very anglicised and adopting lots of English cultures and forgetting his own Bengali identity. Mm-hmm. The thought that um, Sam Adikbal's wife, Alsana, goes through, she's worrying and concerned about her son. And I think it really illustrates the immigrant narrative very authentically and it's quite unashamed and unapologetic in its sort of phraseology and the sort of style that Zadie Smith uses in that quote Um, and I really like the focus on the multicultural existence and the emphasis of how natural it is for us human beings to fear the unknown and genuinely fearing the loss of our identity, um, which I think really equates to the loss of self-worth and the value of life. And it really feeds into this whole rhetoric of them versus us and the polarisation that we're seeing in politics at the moment as well. So I think it ties in nicely with that. Yeah, Zadie Smith has got a magical way with words. Yeah, she really does, yeah. I guess that brings our recording to an end. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having Uh, me. You've come all the way to London for this, so thank you very much. Uh, You're welcome. And I hope we get to go on more ventures soon. Yes. Thanks very much, Got a lot of books to talk about. (laughs) Yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Brown Don't Frown podcast. If today's discussion interested you or you want to share your story, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Brown Don't Frown podcast and on Twitter at BDF podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyasweeklydose.com. Join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. Thank you.